From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. There's a McDonald's down the street from where I live, and I'm always amazed at how long the drive through line is, even at seemingly random hours of the day. Sometimes I am noticing the length of the drive through line while I sit on it myself in pursuit of an Egg McMuffin or some late-night french fries. But I didn't used to really think about McDonald's much at all. It's just there, a permanent fixture of the landscape. These days, I'm thinking about McDonald's all the time, ever since I picked up the book Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, an incredible story of dozens of threads weaved together by my guest today, Georgetown University Professor of History, Dr. Marsha Chatlin. I'm not the only person to be blown away by the scope and power of this book, which reveals the hidden history of how fast food became one of the greatest generators of black wealth and power in America, and the costs of this success story. In fact, Franchise just won the Pulitzer Prize for History, an immense achievement for one of the most important scholars in Jesuit higher ed. I asked Professor Chatlin what it was like to hear she won the Pulitzer, and then we talked about the book and some of the most interesting things she learned during her years of research and writing. I hope you'll be intrigued enough to pick up a copy of Franchise if you haven't read it already. Dr. Chatlin also shared what she has come to love about Jesuit spirituality since arriving at Georgetown 10 years ago. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Professor Marsha Chatlin, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, I'm very excited to be talking for the first time to a Pulitzer Prize winner <laughs> on our show, a brand new Pulitzer Prize winner. So uh, for your uh, great book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. So I, I have to start by get, talking about that newsworthy stuff. So can you like share any story like behind the scenes of what it's like to like find out that you've won a Pulitzer Prize? Well, everything's weird because of COVID. And I have to say, you know, these are not things that were kind of in my purview. Um, I'm very proud of the positive reviews that Franchise got. I'm very proud of the fact that I've won some awards in my professional associations as a historian. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think I was going to win a Pulitzer Prize. Like, that's weird. And so um, there was a date for the announcement of them online. I didn't even know that date. I was at home. Um, I recently became a parent. I adopted um, a baby boy. And I, the whole day, I had a babysitter at home. I just wanted to, like, get back to my son and maybe watch some TV. I had a bacon, egg and cheese bagel that I was dying to eat. And, you know, so it's on the counter. The baby is screaming, needs a bottle. And so I'm sit down and like many modern parents, I like look at Twitter while I'm feeding the baby. And I see that it says, you know, that I won the Pulitzer Prize for history. And all I could think of was this is some like bad joke from a bot that there is some bot that is taking every author and just making them feel like they won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh. And so as I'm looking at it, I'm, I keep on saying to, you know, my baby, I'm like, what's, what's going on? What's going on? I'm so strange. I go to the kitchen and I open my laptop and I watch the announcement and I'm just completely and totally floored. And then the second that ends, 
you know, my phone starts ringing. I'm getting all of these emails and all of these tweets. And it's such a perfectly 21st century way of learning <laughs> good news. But one of the things I have to say that I'm heartened by is the fact that the Pulitzer is the second best thing that happened to me this year, because my son has been such a source of joy and happiness for me and for my family. And that I'll tell him this story and he'll be like, oh, that's great, mom, you know, whatever. You know, like that, that these are, you know, that one of the things that I try to really emphasize with my students, and I never know if I'm really successful, is that it's important to take very seriously your career aspirations. It's, it's important to really cultivate your gifts. But, you know, at the end of the day, the wholeness of the human person is what matters. And for me, you know, feeding my son and then, you know, trying to burp him and then him pooping all over the place was the highlight of that day. And I happened to also win a Pulitzer. <laughs> that, that is, it's wild to me that they don't like call you. And, you know, uh, my publisher didn't even know. They found huh. out when I did. No one knew. And it, it was just such an amazing surprise. Yeah. Has it already changed anything for you? You know, yes and no. So I've gotten emails from historians that I have long admired, you know, kind of welcome to the club. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things I grew up with in my household, uh, my mother's a very spiritual woman, you know, is is someone who really always emphasized that there's the things of the world and there's the things that are substantial and really matter. And so on one hand, it's been incredibly amazing and people have sent beautiful flowers and gifts and my students have sent me the nicest notes. But at the end of the day, I don't want people to remember me because I want a Pulitzer Prize. I want them to think about, you know, I I was a model of kindness when they needed it or, you know, so I, I don't know. It's like you can't start buying your own kind of hype. <laughs> it changes it, right? Because people say, you know, really incre incredible things about your work. But what's I think what makes me happy is that there were so many people in my life through our friendship and through being through different experiences with them and our different journeys in life who are just genuinely happy for me that the kind of love and support that we received as a family when our son came to us, it was just replicated again from that same community. And that feels really good. Hmm. I, I can say though, like reading the book, it does feel like this, like, so I don't know, there's just so much there, so much richness. Um, it feels like you put so, obviously so much time into it. You really you write in the acknowledgments too, which we can talk about the origins of the project, but kind of going back to when you were a teenager, kind of starting to notice some of these things that might be worth exploring. But you, again, just pull so much together, um, but do it in this way that's very accessible for me, who's not a historian, not a professional, but just really felt brought along through the, the story that you're able to construct in this really engaging way while also pulling in all of these historical sources. So for me, it feels it's like very, a very worthwhile uh, recognition for something that clearly was a huge labor of love and work and just so expertly, um, expertly told. Uh, so congratulations uh, again. You. And that's just so, yeah, it's so exciting. And I'm excited to ask you about it and to, to dig into you know, the book sums and hopefully uh, folks who might just be hearing about it through this news uh, will be, will be tempted to, to pick it up. So I guess if we could imagine that you're like in a normal time on an airplane or something when talking mm. to strangers is allowed, uh, or if you've been in those settings and people ask you kind of what you're traveling for, what you're working on, uh, how, how do you like describe the book to people who, who uh, might not be familiar with uh, what you're pursuing? 
So my book franchise examines a moment in the late 1960s when the fast food industry started to turn its focus from suburban markets to inner city and urban markets in response to the upheaval after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When we think about the moments after King's assassination, we often think about the passage of the Fair Housing Act. We think about um, an incredible shift in consciousness about civil rights. We think about the deep mourning for Dr. King. Yet very few people realize that this was a moment in which business, through support by the federal government, as well as major civil rights organizations, was seen as the place in which some of King's desire for racial equality could be manifest. And I tell that story through McDonald's, uh, an entity that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, when I was on my book tour and I would ask how many people here have never been to a McDonald's, two times people answered hmm. that they've never eaten at a McDonald's and they were both, one was raised by a nutritionist and the other one was raised vegan. And that's <laughs> why they've never been to McDonald's. Everyone else had a concept of it. But I think very few people realize the political, social and economic history that brought McDonald's out of the mostly white suburbs into black communities. And the reason why I wanted to write this book was because... As someone who is concerned about food justice and equity, I noticed a lot of times when people talked about the food choices of particularly African Americans, but even the broader um, frame of talking about the eating habits of the poor, there was a kind of castigation and an assumption that there was a natural affinity between these communities and fast food. And I really wanted to historicize those relationships to help people who really care about these issues uh, become more sensitive to the fact that in some communities, in some parts of this country, choices are limited by forces and entities much larger and much more powerful than them. So if we think about health and nutrition as not just about individual choices, but structural investments that are designed to make people believe that this is how we get racial equality, this is how we get progress, then perhaps our strategies for combating some of these issues would change. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me, you talk about in, in the book how there's been a lot of talk about McDonald's, a lot of scholarship on McDonald's and popular culture articles and business journals about the, the I had heard, you know, stories of the early days of McDonald's, um, but that this connection to the black community, especially in urban America, had been largely understudied or underreported on. Uh, so was that something that you thought like, oh, you know, there's been a lot of literature on McDonald's, but this is something that really there's been, you know, very little attention paid to in, in this kind of broader way? Well, I think that a lot of what people thought I was writing about, even if I tried to explain that I wasn't, was that um, I'm not talking about, you know, obesity rates. I'm not talking about diabetes necessarily. I'm talking about a set of material and social conditions that make some communities ripe for the infiltration of fast food and how other communities have many choices and what people are able to consume. And, you know, I, I love telling history from different lenses and different perspectives. My first book, 
uh, Southside Girls was all about thinking about the massive changes of the Great Migration of African Americans from the rural South to the urban North from the perspective of little girls and teenage women. What are we able to see better if we change that focus? And so the story of McDonald's is often presented as a story of innovation, of the mechanization of food production, of car culture, of a kind of sanitized world in which possibilities were endless for all people. And the reality is, is that fast food, like many industries and like many facets of American culture, was predicated on some levels of exclusion and disruption uh, to African Americans, particularly. So I like to find different entry points to invite people into these bigger histories. And I can't think of a better entry point than McDonald's. Yeah. So as you mentioned, in the book, we're talking about uh, car culture and highways. You're talking about civil rights. Uh, you're talking about uh, just so like you know poverty and capitalism and moving into the middle class and the American dream. There's just so many things bound up in the the story, which I again found really fascinating. I was wondering maybe it could bring us to that that moment. You're mentioning some of these these structures um, that kind of leave folks with fewer choices. Um, so what, so how does this the story begin? You, you talk about the assassination of Martin Luther King, the early days of McDonald's as it was growing in the, the 60s, um, this franchise model, the kind of no, no black franchisees uh, in the country. Um, but then that started to change in a kind of in, intentional way and not necessarily just one to, you know, for, uh, for good PR sake, but um, it's a very kind of calculated profit-driven uh, move by McDonald's. So yeah, bring us into the beginning of the, your story there. So the story begins really with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1968. And many cities, um, you know, were sites of confrontation on the streets of police, property damage. There was a lot of grief and anger and rage about yet another person who had symbolized the possibilities of Americans really confronting its racial injustice, you know, was assassinated. And, you know, by 1968, people were very exhausted. And I think that's important to consider. Um, The promises of Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 didn't bear the kind of fruit that people wanted in schools. Fair housing was still such a sore spot um, for people who were seeking a decent place to live for them and their children. you know, the unemployment rates for African Americans were double in some places of whites. I mean, this was a, a time in which the incredible hope of mid-century in the post-World War II era was declining. And here came the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And a lot of questions as to whose responsibility was it to really reform the country. And a number of people had a different ideas of how King's legacy would be play out into the future. And business got a hold of some of these ideas. In the same ways in the summer of 2020, after the George Floyd summer, we heard all of these commitments on the part of businesses and corporations to hire more African Americans, create more opportunities for suppliers, shake up the C-suite. Business starts to suggest that they could play an active role in racial redress, and the federal government in the late 1960s supported this. And so McDonald's enters this space because they know that um, they have some franchise locations in neighborhoods that have changed 
their demographics racially. They also know that the federal government is starting to subsidize uh, minority-owned businesses. And so they experiment in offering the opportunity between 68 and 74, a group of men to become franchise owners in predominantly Black areas. And this uncovers the potential of the Black consumer market. And this opens up all sorts of pathways for McDonald's and then by extension, other fast food restaurants to start to target African-American consumers. So in some ways you could see this, oh, this is a positive development, right? There maybe are more economic opportunities. You can have Black owned businesses and Black communities. Um, so there's clearly some some good comes out of this quickly, but there are other forces at work as well. Um, I think one of the endorsers of your book talked about the mixed blessing of, of franchises in Black America. Do you, would you think of it as a mixed blessing? What are some of those those challenges that come hand in hand with some of the opportunities that were created? Well, I think what happened was that, you know, from the vantage point of 1968, this is really hopeful. This is an opportunity for Black business ownership, Black employment. There are great community ties between these Black franchise owners and the surrounding area. There are opportunities for philanthropic interventions uh, to support historically Black colleges and local efforts. So this is kind of an exciting time. But anytime, in my opinion, we look to corporate structures or we look to business as a way to remedy the problems of racial injustice, we will ultimately be trapped by that solution because capitalism is predicated on winners and losers. Capitalism requires uh, the bottom line to be upheld at the expense of often human dignity. And so even as this opportunity is framed as an extension of King's dream, as it's framed as a place in which African-American self-determination can happen, it all comes at a cost. And we have low-wage work. We have the fundamental environmental uh, challenges of the fast food industry. We have limited opportunities, even among those who do very well within the system. And I think that one of the poignant parts of the book is that there are these African-American franchise owners who are working really hard, who really see their franchise locations as an extension of their commitment to community, but they are underserved by the McDonald's Corporation, or they are put in a very challenging position because they don't have access to capital and they don't have the same resources and advantages of their white counterparts. And so I think that this is a reminder that capitalism and its structure can never fully liberate people from the the realities of racism. And this is something that I really wanted to attend to in the book so that when we have another moment that resembles the 1968 moment or another moment that resembles the moments after George Floyd's death, that we don't turn into this idea that the marketplace could be the place where we find remedies. So one of the, one of the things you talk about in the book is how, at least in a lot of the, the stories of the civil rights movement, especially in connection with business and boycotting, we had things like a Woolworth sit-in. You have a lot of businesses that are targeted, but often ones that are kind of like in the downtown urban areas where at the time McDonald's was still largely kind of out on the road somewhere in, a, in like the growing suburbs of uh, America. But you do tell some stories of how uh, McDonald's was caught up in um, some of these civil rights actions and is not necessarily part of the official McDonald's story. You don't hear about that uh, always. But so could you tell a little bit about how 
the role McDonald's specifically played in in some of the civil rights um, actions of of this era? This was the part that I found most eye-opening in my research because I wanted to talk about the sit-in movement and how it shifted people's understandings and expectations of restaurant service in the South. Although we often credit the activists at North Carolina A&T who sat in at a Woolworths in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960 as kind of, um, you know, starting this mass movement in the South, people had been sitting in prior to the 1960s. But all of this is to say that when McDonald's expanded its franchise networks and expanded in the South, a lot of franchise owners were using the local custom of segregation for their operations. So McDonald's back then didn't have the kind of sit-in facility that we are used to now. It was an ordering uh, window and people would drive up and get their food or sit outside in you know, patio benches. All of this is to say that even in the kind of most rudimentary fast food delivery system, segregation was part of it. And so what I discovered was that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had targeted McDonald's in Green Bluff, um, rather in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, about segregation. There were demands to to desegregate uh, McDonald's in Memphis, Tennessee. And after those February 1st, 1960 sit-ins at Woolworths, local people targeted the McDonald's throughout North Carolina. And so I was just really fascinated how McDonald's is not in the scope of our understanding of the fight against segregated facilities, although it had expanded in places where segregation was practiced. And so in thinking about the ways that McDonald's is tied into that story, but has long presented itself as intervening on behalf of civil rights by expanding opportunities to Black franchise workers uh, in the 1968 moment, I thought that was really fascinating to build the bridge between those two eras. One of the, the things you, you push back on, uh, I think, uh, in in the book is the sense, again, I, I think you mentioned a lot of the talk around kind of how fast food became kind of really enmeshed in, in black communities and black urban communities was that um, this is a, a narrative about personal choice, right? Is that people are choosing these uh, unhealthy foods and it's leading to health issues in, in a big way across uh, black communities and urban communities. Um, I think, again, one thing you try to, to show is that we can't just boil it down to that. Um, it's not just about personal choice. These are, again, these are kind of very conscious decisions made by big forces and, and systems. Um, so could you just give a couple of examples of some of the the systems that kind of lead us to the way things have been uh, set up here in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think that we have a deeply subsidized um, fast food industry, whether it is in the ability for the fast food industry to lobby and successfully, you know, uh, keep the minimum wage uh, dreadfully low. Although in some localities, um, they are forced to, um, you know, pay the higher local wage. We still have a wage issue in fast food. The fact that the foods that the fast food industry depends on are also deeply subsidized by the federal government. So whether it's corn for high fructose corn syrup, whether it's the fact that, you know, the fast food industry has created this incredible demand for certain types of foods. We need a lot of tomatoes for all the burgers and we need tons of potatoes uh, to supply the need for French fries that the fast food industry has essentially reshaped 
um, our agricultural system. And once you have this deep um, demand in agriculture, then you have more spaces in which farm workers are exploited. And you also have the processing of food like, you know, chicken fingers and chicken nuggets and all the kind of um, processing that needs to happen in order for to get your food, this opens up the possibility for more worker exploitation. And so again, you know, cheap food fast um, is part of our expectation as Americans, right? It shapes our palates. It shapes the speed at which we think food should be served. It, it shapes our ideas about, um, you know, memories of childhood and eating, all of those things. And so when we think about these kind of larger systems that are, um, you know, engaged in the fast food industry, and we say, well, why doesn't a person just, you know, eat kale because it's so much better for them? We're losing sight of the various economic as well as access issues that make, um, you know, a value meal at McDonald's sometimes the best, most reasonable choice for a person's life and for their needs and their family's needs. So can as you're getting at this, this book, we're digging into economics, history, obviously, you're a historian, but it is there's so many different spheres of society that are bound up in this this story. So I'm just wondering for you as like in the process of putting this together, which required a lot of travel and research, but then to try to present it in a you know, coherent story that's not just straight chronological or not just like dumping out facts, but really kind of, you know, sharing a narrative and telling a story. Um, how did you approach doing that? Because that just seems like it would be like an overwhelming project, how to even begin, how to make an outline of this to figure out which way you wanted to go about sharing uh, the story and to keep it, keep people engaged, which I think you really did masterfully. So I'm just, it's like a process question. How do you go about oh, so a project like this? It's so hard. <laughs> You know, I, I, it's funny, I'm a pretty focused person, but I could be a pretty distracted thinker. And I could have read, I could have written a 10 volume set on this issue, the volume of research I collected, and I'm, you know, very much one person who, um, as long as I can, I like going to the archive myself and going through every single document. This was really hard to do. Um, because, I didn't have one character that moves through the whole book, but I had a set of ideas about race, about civil rights, about food that I was trying to kind of move along chronologically and thematically. Um, I don't know how I did it. I think um, what I always do when I write is I write on post-it notes what I wanted, what I want people to learn. So at the end of this chapter, I want you to learn what black capitalism is. I want you to learn about um, the tensions between um, the different directions of the civil rights movement. And I want you to know about the Nixon administration's uneasy relationship to black communities. Like if those are the three things I want you to learn, what are my best illustrations and how am I going to explain it in a way that regardless of kind of where you're starting, we can all move together. And in many ways, my writing is informed by how I look at teaching, right? There's all of these people in a room who are so different. They're coming from different places. What are going to be the common analogies or the common metaphors, the common references that we can all start with together and move in the same direction? Um, there's tons of post-it notes. There's lots of crying. Um, <laughs> there's lots of good feedback from amazing people. Um, the editor for this book, um, this book had several editors, but it started with this incredible, incredible person named Katie Adams, who just, 
I could kindly say, okay, you're being boring here. <laughs> you know, do more here, do less here. And just, you know, just help me think my thoughts in a way that was really respectful of my perspective and my feelings about this topic, not hers, but really knew the right questions to ask. So as you mentioned, there's not a single character you kind of trace through uh, the entire story, but you did, you shared stories of a lot of different people, people who I'm sure you you met, whether in person or just met them through their stories and learning about them uh, through the course of your research. And I'm wondering if there's anyone you met that way um, in the course of writing the book whose story you were especially excited to be able to share um, with, with readers. You know, this is this is going to sound strange. Um, there were so many interesting people that, um, you know, were part of telling the story of franchise. And um, I talked to some black franchise owners, some who had very positive experiences, some not so positive. Um, but I think I think the person that I met again was Martin Luther King Jr. Um, although I think each year everyone reminds us that Martin Luther King was a complicated guy. You know, don't reduce him to, um, you know, this one dimensional, everyone should get along kind of guy that the, he had this real complexity. But I have to say that in writing this book several times, I would go on YouTube and listen to King's final speech um, at Bishop Mason Temple in Memphis. And every time I listen to what he is saying, I meet someone that I admire and respect and connect with on a completely different level, even though I've read a lot of Martin Luther King Jr. And I, you know, have seen the March on Washington documentaries a million times. And, you know, I've been in some. There's something about that final oration that we often think of because it's so prophetic, right? He he. It seems like he is foreseeing his death at the end when he says, you know, I fear no man, you know, I may not get there with you, but we will get here, you know, as a people. That part everyone really gets fixated on because it's chilling. But when you listen to the whole thing and he starts with the people, um, you know, the, the Egyptians, and he starts with the kind of wandering in the desert. And he starts with, you know, the lifelong struggle to realize freedom. And then he goes through the entire wave of human history. And he talks about the sit-ins and he talks about the freedom writers. And he talks about the need for solidarity. I mean, you know, this is this is the Jesuit podcast. So solidarity is not a new word here. But when he talks about why he is in Memphis and what people need to do to be in solidarity with the sanitation workers, that they are feeling pain. So we feel pain too. And that we are engaging in boycott because we want to make sure that workers know that we're with them. There's something that is so beautiful and so gratifying to hear that message. And so I hope I talk, I read, I walk, um, what am I trying to say? I write a little bit about it in the book, but I think that I hope that people rediscover King and rediscover the radical possibilities of King through this book as they see the ways that King's memory and legacy have been co-opted so much by corporations. Um, so that was the first one. And then the second one I say, I'll say is that um, I met a McDonald's manager in Dallas, Texas, who, you know, who really sees her work as an extension of her values. Um, there's so many things to criticize about the fast food industry and workers. And at the same time, for this one black woman in Dallas, she sees herself as facilitating 
that opportunity to give that second chance to a person who may have, um, uh, you know, a felony conviction on their criminal record and is having a hard time finding a job. And she sees herself as, you know, ministering to people who have been left behind. And I think that I had to really sit with those contradictions as I wrote this book to be empathetic to the fact that if this is the power you have in the world and this is how you want to use it um, to show grace and to show love to people, this is something I have to take seriously. And I can't just, you know, like criticize every aspect of it because I know that people are using the fast food industry for different things. Yeah, that is one thing I really admire about the work is that you're, you kind of sit in that complexity or not afraid of the complexity while also acknowledging like the real hurt that has come from this this connection. But you use the the McDonald's in Ferguson, Missouri, in the aftermath of the Michael Brown um, murder to kind of talk about what the role McDonald's played in the aftermath of that and within the community there. And what were some of the things that you saw in that particular location that, that made you want to, to use um, to kind of focus a little bit on the McDonald's in Ferguson? You know, I just thought this was an amazing moment to think about in terms of how the forces of civil unrest often give birth to the power or provides new energy for corporations and capitalist structures, right? So that when the dust settles, it's the businesses that tend to be leading the conversation and they are coming from such a self-interested place. And, you know, the Ferguson McDonald's was such a fascinating place because it was a convergence of all of the actors in the process, right? All of the different people who would find themselves, you know, in proximity to each other because of this moment and for no other reason. And the one place that is open that is the gathering spot is the McDonald's. You know, it's in many ways, I, I wrote this book because I was concerned that McDonald's had replaced civil society, had replaced the state in communities that need the most investment and the most care. And so what does it mean when the meeting place is the McDonald's um, or the point of convergence is that parking lot or inside that restaurant and people identify it as such? And not, you know, the public library or the town square or the church, right? What does it mean for it to have that reach? And how can, you know, my research help you read that moment differently? So there's all of these pictures of protesters and police and news cameras in front of that McDonald's. How can understanding this long history allow you to see that McDonald's um, clearly in the frame for what it means? So this... You again hit on these very current events and connecting them um, through you know to the the past, the last you know half century or, or more at this point. Um, but the book came out before the pandemic, uh, or I guess you had finished writing it at least before the pandemic and um, before the the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the the protests that followed. And I was just curious, having just come off of that and really immersed yourself in that process for so long, to watch those things happen, were there things for you that then resonated with your your research that you thought, oh, okay, this this is a point of connection here? Maybe a way of getting at this is if you were to write an afterword for the next edition that kind of brings in some of these these things we've seen from the past couple of years, what what might you want to focus on? Well, what's really strange is that when the book came out in January 2020, it was like a novel look at McDonald's history. And then the pandemic hit, and then the George Floyd summer happened, 
And then it was this kind of like chilling and eerie recounting of how corporations step into the fray. Um, when the book came out in paperback in, um, I think the winter of 2021, I read, I wrote a preface and I talked about, you know, the George Floyd summer and I talked about, um, you know, the Wendy's that was torched in Atlanta. And I talk about this and, you know, the most curious thing that happened in between the two editions was that McDonald's tweeted out Black Lives Matter. Hmm. And I thought, you know, this is really weird. Um, and so, on so many levels, this is really weird. Um, but why that statement um, wasn't that unusual if we look at this long history of McDonald's ingratiating itself to black struggle um, in order to suggest that it does something fundamentally different or it exists in a space in solidarity with black people at the same moment that, you know, workers were going to work at McDonald's without proper protective equipment and no paid sick days and still trying to make above the federal minimum wage. And so that strange irony of McDonald's tweeting out Black Lives Matter, you know, it, that wasn't new, but rather perhaps because of the lessons of the past five decades, um, people could be more discerning as to the problems of that message. And they can think about ways that they could work to ensure that, you know, those messages are not, um, are not, are not just uttered and not, you know, they, they're not followed up with some real accountability and some different demands. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting that 50 plus years after King's assassination, buy from black businesses or open more black businesses continues to be the refrain when people are asking for substantive structural state-based change. There, there has been certainly a kind of with this confluence of the pandemic and uh, the racial justice movements in the, the past year, as you've seen, again, this, this structural injustice that was kind of built into so many of our systems revealed in terms of, you know, higher rates of infection in black and brown communities, higher rates of death, uh, higher rates of unemployment, all, all of those things. And it's like, oh, that's not just because of the pandemic. That's just showing us what has has been there. Um, but there has been, I think, in response to that, then I saw in a parallel way to um, 1968, this emphasis on, oh, can we support black owned businesses? We, we for instance, like in our neighborhood have um, food trucks that come in and do food drops during the pandemic and try to have black owned businesses come there's a there were black bartenders who formed a, a kind of collective to to sell cocktails in different you know neighborhoods would kind of make custom cocktails would bring them deliver them to your neighborhood um and people i think saw that as a way to kind of support those things and and that being a, a positive thing um what has been your response to some of those movements um it's kind of grassroots movements maybe to still connected obviously to, to business and entrepreneurship but maybe on a smaller scale um to kind of lift up um Black business. Yeah, I mean, I don't have I don't begrudge any effort to try to support, you know, black owned businesses. I think that's fine. My primary concern is why black owned businesses are carrying the weight of not just their own kind of business success, but of community needs. This is where I start to get very concerned. Um, a black owned business should sell whatever products they have. And we should live in a world where we have a robust public um, system that takes care of needs of the public good. 
And so I don't want a Black-owned business to have to be successful in order for kids to have extracurricular programs at their schools. And I don't want the Black-owned business to be the only places where people can make a living wage or are not impeded from getting a job because of having spent time in a carceral facility. And I don't want the Black-owned business to be the only space in which um, black and brown customers feel safe. And so, you know, I, I see all of this stuff is just fine, but the types of problems that it is trying to solve were not caused by black owned businesses. It was called, it was created by failed states that have starved communities for so long. And so this is when I, um, I get grumpy is that when I think one is trying to substitute for the other. Sure. Are there examples of of things that you've seen that you you lift up in terms of this is another way or these are things that we we can be focusing on that are, are heartening to you? Uh, you know, every day that someone is saying, you know, where like what are we doing with the federal minimum wage? What are we doing with paid sick leave? What are we doing with universal childcare? What are we doing with Medicare for all? What are we doing with free college? I mean, the the policy interventions I think are pretty clear. Um, I don't know if Joe Biden listens to this podcast. I know he's a friend of the Jesuits. <laughs> he Joe is. Bi Joe Biden, if you are <laughs> listening to this podcast and you want to be the president that will be known for fixing the racial morass of the United States, you don't have to have another federal holiday for Juneteenth. You don't have to do anything. You just have to create a real social structure. It won't solve all the problems, but boy, will that help. Cancel that student debt. Um, you know, implement uh, legislation that makes it illegal to create this type of um, these housing policies where you can't have, um, you know, multi-unit dwellings in communities. So, so, so poor and low-income people have nowhere to go when they're in housing voucher programs. Like, make some college free. Let's get all everyone on Medicare. All of these types of interventions will then make me less grumpy so that when I buy something in a food truck, I'm just purchasing something to eat. I'm not consumed as to whether or not this purchase will have to extend beyond this food truck and nourish a community that that is starving. Yeah, we do. And I, this feels to me like almost analogous to some of the discussion around climate change, right? Is that there's there's been a lot of this onus then pushed out to us, like, make sure you're turning the lights off and making good consumer choices. And I think that, like, that you know, that's important to me, I think, to cultivate those things and to teach our kids make those types of choices. But it ends up then essentially kind of letting off, letting some corporations or letting our structures off the hook because it's just all, all up to us and our individual choices. And then uh, we'll get to a better place. And it's like, well, that's not exactly, it's not really set up for that. Absolutely. And I think that this is this is why I think if we are um, I think that if we listen to history, it reminds us that we actually have a lot of information to make the best decisions possible. I want to let you go in a minute, but I do have to ask uh, in the acknowledgement section of your book, you talk about coming to uh, to learn and appreciate uh, Ignatian or Jesuit spirituality uh, since being at Georgetown. You also are uh, an alum of a Jesuit high school, St. Ignatius College Prep in Chicago. Um, so I, since we are the Jesuits, I have to ask you about uh, what about Ignatian spirituality, uh, the tradition of the Jesuits, uh, have you most valued in, in your time at Georgetown? Oh, that's a beautiful question. You know, my friendships with um, Jesuits have have been so meaningful and so special to me. And, um, you know, I think I think with our students, we we talk about discernment um, so much and we talk about um, 
you know, the, the, what am I trying to say? I, I think, gosh, all of it. So the, the one thing that I have, um, appreciated most in my explorations of Jesuit spirituality and my friendships with Jesuits and being part of Jesuit education is thinking about the importance of, um, of stillness and discernment as this kind of, um, process of in a, a disinterested good, right? That so much of being in academia and so much about, you know, my own ambition has been about I'm making this right and strategic decision. And that is different than what I've learned about discernment. Discernment as a process of a kind of emptying of your own self-interest, of of really just kind of how we evaluate the good from a place of not our ego, but in a kind of fullness of our spirit and really listening uh, to that internal movement um, has just been so important to me because my life for the past few years has been very loud. Um, a lot of traveling, a lot of talking, a lot of being in public spaces. And I think that what the Jesuit tradition reminds me is that uh, that the that the quiet that the stillness is is actually where the best answers come from and so um you know i'm i'm in this season right now in which there's so many wonderful and good things that are happening to me but there's something about a kind of emptying um process that i think also is part of the season that um God, what am I trying to say? I'm like all over the place because it's such a thoughtful question. Um, a kind of, you know, emptying of the ego, emptying of the self-interest, emptying of the desire to receive in order to be of service. After we adopted our son, I felt this great love for my child, but I also felt like such great love for the people around me. It was this very weird thing because I know that as a parent... Um, you hear a lot about, you know, your child is the person you love the most and you want to just give everything to that child. And I understand that impulse, but there was something that was so grace filled about the experience that I, I came into a deeper appreciation and love for my family and friends that I, I can't quite explain, but I do think that, you know, all those years of reading the spiritual exercises has something to do with it. And so, you know, I'm, I, I'm just in this incredible place of gratitude right now um, that makes me somewhat incoherent, but filled with, with so much hope and possibility for the future. Well, I, I hear in that response and also in your talking about how you responded to winning the Pulitzer Prize uh, and like why that wasn't the most important thing to you. And, and then also how taking care of family and, and students and caring for the whole person is uh, important to you. I think of the the great Jesuit tradition of cura personalis or the, the care for uh, the whole person. And I think even in, in how your book kind of invites us to think about that uh, on a societal level, it's like, how are we doing at setting up? are some of these things we don't think about like um you know where i'm going to get breakfast through at a drive through you know th those decisions that we make often without considering is how are those how do those reflect some systems that we have set up through our choices as a uh, society and can change uh, so that people are better taken care of and can not just get by but can really live lives that you know we would say god would want for uh, each one of his children so i, I appreciate your your sharing that way um so hopefully have some time for some quiet, but I am curious, do you know what project you're 
pursuing next? Are you taking a break from writing or are you digging, jumping back into something? Uh, what, what's next for, for you? You know, um, I, there's so many questions as to what comes next. This was such an unexpected, um, you know, opening in my career. Um, you know, I think the thing that I hope to do is to continue telling different stories about civil rights. My dream as a historian was always to write a group biography. And so I'm kicking around a few ideas of group biographies of people at various moments in the civil rights struggle, whether it's at the March on Washington moment or the moments uh, right after King's assassination. So I've got some ideas for that. Um, I love doing other things. I hope to write for a podcast. <clears throat> I hope to maybe do some television writing or a documentary. So I, I really just see this as an opportunity to... Um, work on being as, um, you know, as flexible as possible on the various communities that I get to talk to. There's a, I think that there's a real joy in dexterity. So, you know, a fifth grade class can learn a little bit about black capitalism, as well as my other historian colleagues, as well as someone who has never thought about these issues. And so as many ways as I can find a way to just talk and communicate with people, um, the better. That's great. If you out uh, these invitation stands, if you ever want to write for a podcast, write a, an audio essay, we'll, we'll happily run it. Oh, <laughs> AM, AMDG anytime, uh, though, I imagine you could probably find a slightly larger platform than ours. The invitation does stand. I just so appreciative of your, your taking the time today and your, your thoughtfulness and the, the, the great book. And just congratulations on all the exciting things uh, in your life. And uh, thank, you. thank you so much for, for taking the time. A real pleasure. Thanks a bunch. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>